If you take a look at the religions of the world, all of them have one thing in common, that there is a being or group of beings at the top that they're in charge. What these religions can't agree on though is what happens to people when they die, especially when it comes to the idea of resurrection. There's some false Christian branches that believe uh, when you die, your soul goes into what's called a soul sleep, which means that your soul uh, just kind of wanders aimlessly through the cosmos and that's kind of it. There's others that believe that nothing, absolutely nothing happens to you when you die. You live, you die, that's it, which is a pretty sad life to live with no hope or nothing. Then there are other religions that have a completely wrong view of resurrection. Consider Hinduism, where they believe in a resurrection, but it's through reincarnation. If you're good in this life, then you become a better version of yourself or whatever it may be in the next life. If you're good, you might become a famous athlete, a movie star, or if you're really good in your next life, you'll become Wabi, which... That'd be awesome. On the other side, if you're bad in this life, then you would become a cow. And if you're a bad cow, then you become a bug. If you're a bad bug, you turn into an Eagles fan, which is the worst punishment of them all. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. What constitutes a bad cow or bug? You know, I'll leave that up to them. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, turn in your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is going to be shifting topics from how people should act towards one another through correction and condemnation to addressing the doctrinal issue of resurrection. But why this sudden shift from Paul? Well, there's two reasons that this chapter is necessary. First, we need to take into account the timing uh, the location and the thinking of the time. The city of Corinth is located in what country? Corinth. That's the city in the country of Greece. That's right. Some of you said Greece. I heard it. I'll take it. So it's located in the country of Greece. As we've learned, the church itself in Corinth was made up of both reformed Jews who were saved, they accepted Jesus as their Messiah and the Greeks who were saved out of uh, paganism, out of the, the Greek secular religion. You know, the, the Jews, they had received some teaching of what resurrection means. They had a correct historical teaching of it in scripture. They, they had seen passages like Daniel 12 two. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Hosea 6.2. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. The Corinthian Greeks, on the other hand, they were saved from a religion that viewed anything as spiritual is good. So your spirit, good. But anything physical, anything materialistic, anything you can touch is bad. So to them, they just came out of a religion that thought the worst thing imaginable was for you to die, for your spirit to be set free, but then all of a sudden it's put back into this sinful body. To them, that was the worst thing. So Paul here goes 
into a teaching of what the resurrection actually means. That's the first reason why this chapter is important. The second reason this chapter is necessary has to do with the timing of when this letter was written. This letter was written about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and the church begins, right? The other books that discuss in depth the resurrection of Jesus are the Gospels. Those were written about 45 to 70 years later. So to the Corinthian church, the only thing they had to learn about the resurrection of Jesus Christ was through this letter that Paul had written them and to what they had been taught by teachers. That's why this letter fits perfectly uh, in this context because they just learned about all the sign gifts. They learned what they, were, what they were, what they were to be used for. And now they're like, okay, we're learning a completely insane almost teaching about Jesus rising from the dead, what that means for us. They hadn't heard about anything else. They hadn't, you know, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have any of the resources we do to learn about it. They just had this one letter and what the other teachers had given them. The signs, the miraculous things that the apostles were doing validated the message that they were receiving, especially when it comes to the resurrection. So with this in mind, let's read our passage for today. We're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of who remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have the entire context of scripture and that we have the Holy Spirit that helps us understand it. I pray that you would humble us before you this evening. Help us to never lose um, our wonder of how amazing the gift that you have given us in salvation is. We thank you and love you in your name. Amen. The title for our lesson this, uh, this evening is Dealing with the Resurrection Part 1. Dealing with the Resurrection Part 1. That's Justin's title. The real title, my title, so is val Validations for the Resurrection. Dealing with the Resurrection Part 1, Validations for the Resurrection. In this passage, we're going, we are going to see five different ways the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is validated. 
The first way, point number one, is the church. The church, we see this in verses one to two. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which also you were saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you're taking notes, which I hope most of you are, I want you to write down in one sentence, answer this question, what is the gospel? Just write it down quickly. What is the gospel? Answer, answer that in one sentence. What is the gospel? In five, four, three, two, one. All right. Who cheated and looked down at verses three and four? I'll pretend that a few people in the back raised their hands. Simply put, the gospel, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. That's the gospel plus the call to repent and believe. Simple. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. This is the message that has been taught to the church from the beginning. When we want to learn about the beginning of the church, what book do we go to? The book of Acts. Some of you whispered it. I'll take it. I'm giving you guys easy questions. They won't be too hard, I promise. So let's turn to the book of Acts. Look how the beginning of the book, of the beginning of the church begins. That's a lot of begins. Let's begin in verse one. I did that one on purpose. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse three, to those he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning to the kingdom of God. Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection appearing over and over again to several different groups of people. Paul is reminding the Corinthians of this fact that Jesus's resurrection is foundational to their beliefs. Jesus's life without believing in the resurrection is taking away his godship. You can't have a savior God who is still dead. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, those things go hand in hand, Jesus's lordship and his resurrection, then you will be safe. A true belief in the resurrection is foundational to your salvation. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, believing in the resurrection does not necessarily bring salvation, but not believing in the resurrection does bring damnation. And read that again. Believing in the resurrection does not necessarily bring salvation, but not believing in the resurrection does bring damnation. The Corinthians believed in the resurrection. That's why they were thriving as a church. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. Notice the caveat that he put at the end of verse 2. He said, if you, you will continue to be a beacon of light. You will continue to grow as a church, as believers, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If they had believed in vain, well, then they would have left the church already. Once again, he emphasizes that if they hold fast, to the teachings that they heard from Paul and the other disciples, which we know they had, because think back to chapter six, 
Paul listed out all the sins of, you know, um, that the people in Corinth were experiencing. What does he say at the end of that section? And such were some of you, but you were saved, you were justified, you were, um, um, you were saved out of those sins. They were holding fast to the teachings that they heard, heard from Paul. The same can be said of the church today. You see, the resurrection, as I've said, is foundational to our faith. And the fact that the church still exists and is full of people that are transformed, that are saved from every kind of sin, proves that the teaching that Paul gave the Corinthians on the resurrection is true. It's true today just as it was when Jesus stepped out of the grave. The second way the resurrection is validated is through scripture. Point number two is through scripture. We see this in verses three and four. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul begins verse 3 with a phrase that he's used several times in his letters. He says, I delivered to you. That's how Paul viewed his ministry. It wasn't him going and bringing new teaching. He didn't see himself as some sort of enlightened person. He wasn't trying to revolutionize what was being taught about Jesus. He simply said, you know what? I've been given this message and God gave it to me and I'm giving it to you. That I'm, I'm just the middleman. That, that's all it is. We see the same phrase in chapter 11 when he says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And then he goes, on to talk about how the Lord's table should be taken. The reason that Paul constantly reminds the people of this fact that he's just the messenger is twofold. First of all, because of the importance of the message. He doesn't want people to think that he's giving them a uh, message for his own personal gain. He's giving them a message that is false, that can be changed. No, he wants to remind them that the message that he is giving them is directly from God. Secondly, he does this because of the reputation that he had before he was saved. We're not going to go through it, but in Galatians chapter 1, Paul recounts his testimony, starting with his former life as a persecutor of the church and how God miraculously saved him when he was on the road to Damascus. He even begins that section recounting his testimony by saying, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. Once again, the message that he is delivering is from God. Back in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is delivering a message that he received. And look at the emphasis that he puts on it. He says it's a message of first importance. This message that he's given them is the most important message that he wants them to receive. If you get this message wrong, the message of the gospel everything else fails. The rest of your faith does not matter. You cannot be a true Christian and not believe in this message. What is it? We've already talked about it. It's the gospel that Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. All three of those together are of first importance. This message is in perfect agreement with the scriptures that the Corinthians had at the time, which was, remember, only the Old Testament. That's all they had. So let's take a look at some of the passages that talk about Jesus' resurrection, that talk about the gospel. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. 
Isaiah 53. In this chapter, Isaiah receives a prophecy of Jesus taking on the role as a suffering servant and the circumstances surrounding the end of his life. We see images that clearly lay out the death of Jesus. Look at verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Pierced, crushed, scourging. These are all things that happened to Jesus, either while he was on his way to or actually on the cross. And these adjectives all describe the actions of someone who is about to die. These aren't, you know, a pat on the head. These cause death. Drop down to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Here's a p clear picture that Christ would die in our place to take our sins, take the punishment so that would satisfy God's wrath so that we can be forgiven. The second part of this most important message, so one, he has to die. We saw those in those verses. Second part of the most important message is that he had to be buried. Why do you think Paul included this part? I mean, we understand the death and resurrection part, right? That's, that's easy. But why the, why the being buried part? Well, being buried proves that you're dead. You don't bury a live person if you do, they're not going to be alive for very long. So one way or another, buried people die. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We see here, this is when uh, Jesus had died on the cross. Uh, all the miraculous things happened. And this is when uh, Joseph asks for Jesus' body. Mark chapter 15, let's start in verse 42. When evening had already come, because it was a preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as whether he was already dead. And after chaining this from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph, the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Jesus was undeniably dead. The centurions made sure of it. Pilate made sure of it. The whole crowd there knew that Jesus was no longer alive. But imagine the, the trouble the soldiers would get into if they go to Pilate and they're like, yeah, we're pretty sure he's dead, but he was only mostly dead. And he was able to like get up and walk away. No, imagine the trouble they would be in. They would be made fully dead. Everybody there knew that Jesus was dead. The Romans, the people, the Jewish leadership, there was no question that Jesus was dead. The only reason Joseph was able to take Jesus' body and bury it was because several people, everybody there knew and verified that Jesus was dead. 
To the Jews, they didn't care what happened to Jesus' body. They're like, he's dead. There is no way that he's going to be able to come back from that. <laughs> to the Romans, they knew he was dead. But just to be sure, they rolled a giant rock in front of his tomb and put several soldiers there just, just to make sure no one stole his body or anything like that. You don't bury someone who's alive. Jesus' burial further validated his physical death. The scriptures prove Jesus died, as we saw in Isaiah 23. Turn back there to Isaiah, I'm sorry, 53. The account of his burial further validates the fact that he died. But what about his resurrection? What about his resurrection? Look at the second half of Isaiah 53, verse 10. Can someone who is dead see their offspring? Their kids or, oh, I'm sorry, those are my notes. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now I'll ask you that question. Is someone who is dead, can they see their offspring? Can they see their kids or their grandkids? No, it's impossible. Why? Because they're dead. They can't do anything. If that's the case, then why would God say that the Messiah will do both of these? Because he will not be chained by death, but he will conquer it through his resurrection. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> this passage is when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he essentially does a lesson on Psalm 16, which talks about the resurrection. So uh, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, and here Peter quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken." Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life and will make me full of gladness with your presence. Jesus' death was predicted by the scriptures. He died. He was buried to validate the fact that he was dead. His resurrection was foretold by the scriptures, and sure enough, it happened. These are simply two passages that deal with Jesus' death and resurrection. There are so many more that we could point to that could show these facts. The Old Testament prophesies it, and now we have the New Testament that validate it through the account of eyewitnesses where we see all this take place. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to look at the third way Jesus' resurrection is validated. 
The first was because of the growth and longevity of the church. The second was because it's validated through scripture. Now third, it's validated by general eyewitnesses. Number three, general eyewitnesses at ease. Thank you. Let's read verses five through seven. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of who will remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The first two points that validated Jesus' resurrection of the church and scripture, they could be pretty uh, easily dismissed by unbelievers. Unbelievers could say, well, the church is in on this lie and they, you know, for thousands of years, they've been perpetuating this lie and, you know, you guys are all in on the joke. That, that didn't really happen. And they could also say, well, we don't believe the scriptures. We don't believe in the prophecies. So what are you going to say to that? Well, here, what they can't refute, though, is the fact that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to several thousand people. And it wasn't just at one time. Jesus didn't show up to the Jerusalem location of AT&T Stadium and said, hey, I'm here and leave. He appeared to different groups of people at different locations, at different times, in varying sizes of groups. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Verse 6 says that he appeared to more than 500 people at a time. At once, at once. In Luke 24, this chapter begins, uh, this is right when the resurrection happens. Uh, This chapter begins with Jesus appearing to the Marys and Joanna. Then they call Peter and he runs to the tomb and he only sees the linens and uh, the empty tomb. After this, we're transported to two men, Cleopas and another unmade man, which I kind of feel bad for that guy. He's like, there's literally only two of us here. And Cleopas is the one that gets named? Come on. That's not the important part. These two guys were walking on the road to Emmaus. They're talking about what happened over that weekend with Jesus' death and all the crazy events that surrounded it. When all of a sudden, Jesus approaches them. They aren't able to recognize him because God clouded their, their eyes and I started asking Jesus questions on if he knew what had happened. And after some back and forth, Jesus starts explaining to them essentially the history of uh, the Old Testament, starting with Moses, moving forward and explaining his resurrection and the the prophecy of the Messiah. Let's pick it up in verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going. And he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him saying, Stay with us, for it's getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So these two guys realized, whoa, whoa, hold on. We just spent this whole time learning about the prophecy of this Messiah from Jesus, They turn around to talk to him and poof, he's gone. Amazing. Verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us and on the road while he was explaining the scripture to us? 
They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 who were there with him. So these guys, they left Jerusalem to go to Emmaus. They got there. They had dinner with Jesus. Jesus is like, surprise, it's me. And he disappears. They're amazed. They run back to Jerusalem. They find the 11. The 11 were hanging out together, grieving. You know, they were sad Jesus was dead. And this is what they tell them. The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon, Peter. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus spent the better part of 40 days not moving in secret, not only appearing to the apostles, to the small select group of people. Rather, he appeared to different groups of people of varying sizes, in different regions, in different ways, as we see here, boom, he's appearing, he's teleporting left and right to appear to all these different people. And all these people walked away with the same message. He's back. He's risen. Why is it so important that Jesus appeared to this many people? Well, as we discussed, you can claim to say that the resurrection is fabricated, but if that many people are giving that consistent of a message, it only validates the truth of the resurrection. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul shifts from the multitude of people that Jesus appeared to, to one specific eyewitness. <coughs> Excuse me, that's point number four, a specific eyewitness. Verse eight. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. The last person Paul brings up to validate the resurrected Christ is himself. And Paul uses some pretty graphic language to describe himself here. The term that he uses as to one untimely born is the same term as an aborted fetus. That's how lowly Paul views himself. Because remember, what was Paul doing when Jesus appeared to him? He was on his way to kill Christians. He was on his way to try to stop the message that he would eventually be preaching. He viewed himself as dead, worthless, this, this clump of flesh Yet that is who Jesus decided to appear to. Here's a man who understands what it means to be dead to sin, to be an enemy of God. In verse 9, he says that because he persecuted the church, even though he is saved now, he still doesn't believe that he should be called an apostle. He understands how much he has been saved. Too many times I think we can look at ourselves um, and, and think, man, I'm glad I wasn't as bad as Paul. 
And, you know, God did a good job by saving me because, you know, I, I'm one of the good ones. No, we, we were all dead to our sin. None of us deserved God's grace. We were all as one untimely born. We're all unworthy of God's love. But look back, look back at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul had no reason to invent and perpetuate the story of the resurrection. He had power, status, money, anything he could want, Paul had. Then suddenly he gives all that up and starts following the message and, and preaching the message of those that he was trying to kill. Why would someone do that? They wouldn't. And that's the point. They wouldn't out of their own will. Only a risen Lord could cause someone to have such a drastic change. And notice that Paul didn't just become saved and he's like, all right, guys, I'm one of you. Because he knew how much he had been saved, the end of verse 10, I labored even more than all of them. He said, you know what? Because I have been saved from such a wretched, sinful lifestyle, someone who persecuted the church, someone who participated and organized the killing of Christ's disciples, because that's who I was, I'm going to work even harder than the rest of you. I'm going to be even more fervent in my devotion to you, Lord. But he's still humble about it. He says, it's not me doing this. I didn't choose to be saved. God because of his grace, is the one that's doing this through me. The fact that Paul's life drastically changed from someone who persecuted the church to someone who was a fervent champion for the cause of Christ validates Jesus' resurrection. And to come full circle, the last way the resurrection is validated was through the consistent message, point number five. The consistent message, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. It doesn't matter if it was Paul or any of the other 11 disciples or, you know, who else that was preaching the gospel. The message they all preached was the same. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. And the results of them preaching this message was the same. People were being saved. The church was growing. People believed. It's amazing. We're going to spend the next few lessons talking about why the resurrection is so important to our faith and how it applies to our lives and the consequences of if Jesus had not been raised, what that would mean. But for today, though, I want to challenge you with the following. First of all, is your faith grounded in this foundational truth of the gospel? Do you truly believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again? Have you believed this message? Have you repented of your sin and turned to pursue holiness? If you have believed, are you sharing that message with others? You may think that you don't know enough or you're not qualified enough to share the gospel with others. Who cares? Take a look at Paul. He was the least qualified person 
when he was first saved, he started preaching the message and people were like, whoa, dude, we know exactly who you are. You killed my friends, but now you're trying to talk to me about Jesus? You may think that you're unqualified, but that doesn't matter. Paul understood how much God loved him, and he shared that message with others. If you think you don't know enough about sharing the gospel, what the gospel is, guess what? That's why we memorize. Our Bible quizzing curriculum is all about sharing the gospel. If you just quote those verses to the people you know, there you go. That's why we do Bible quizzing, to help train you in your Bible knowledge. If you're too shy or if you don't like talking to people, too bad. You were probably saved because someone shared the gospel with you. You heard someone giving a lesson about the gospel. You've been given the most wonderful gift. You have been brought out of death into life. You should be sharing that with others because it's the most important message anyone will ever hear. Next, work hard in your service, knowing that it's the grace of God that allows us to serve him. You've been saved. It's, it's amazing. What are you doing with that gift? Are you working hard serving here in the church? Are you loving your family? Are you serving your friends at school? Work hard so that people, when they look at you, they will see someone that is different for the cause of Christ. And finally, live with an eternal perspective. Christ was raised from the dead, and one day we will be there with him. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that we serve a living God. We're so thankful that our faith is not in vain. And as we look at the example of Paul, I pray that we would follow it, not because he was able to do this on his own, but because you work through him and you have worked in us. I pray that you would help us to be champions for the cause of Christ, help us to preach the gospel, the truth that is that you died, you were buried, and you rose again to conquer death so that you will look on us with favor, with love, and one day we will spend eternity with you. We thank you and love you in your name. Amen.